We're going to finish this chapter today, Romans chapter 12. And we're, uh, we're just going to read the last, uh, from verses 9 through 21. Um, we've been dwelling in this chapter for a while, so I think we're familiar with the context. But in verse 9, there's a departure, there is a, there's sort of like a new heading that Paul introduces. And this is the heading, Let Love Be Genuine. Let Love Be Genuine. And he follows the same pattern that he does in 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter, chapter 12, chapter 12, where he talks about the body of Christ and all of its gifts, and we just finished that part. And in Corinthians, then he goes on and he says, yet I show you a more excellent way. And then he begins to talk about love and what real love is. If you want to, on your own, as a further commentary on what we discussed today, uh, just go and, and prayerfully read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That will give you the, the baseline uh, and, and the, the foundation and um, the whole the whole atmosphere of what it is to live in Christ and what it is to respond in faith and, and, and in, in action to the mercies of God. So we're going to read verses 9 through 21. You should all be there by now. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. But love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Hold, to fa hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, he will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now there is nothing in there that is difficult to understand. It's not rocket science. Um, it's plain language. I don't even really have to exposit this for all of us, especially those of us who are in Christ, to know that this is where Christ is drawing us. That this is the transformation and conformity to the image of Christ. You know, when we're, when you could, we are predestined, those who are in Christ, to be conformed to his image. And this is, this is what it looks like along that path of ever moving under the power of the Holy Spirit toward the image of Christ. 
Now, this whole section really seems to fall under the heading of let love be genuine. And let's take a moment to look at that word genuine or genuine. Um, if you have another translation, it says, let's say, love must be sincere. In old uh, King James, it says, uh, let love be without dissimulation. Um, none of those really bring out the sense of what it means to be genuine as it is in the Greek language. And this is one place where the Greek is very helpful because the, the Greek word for, um, for genuineness is, means um, without, so it has a, a, a letter alpha in front, and then it has a word that I can't, I won't even try to pronounce it properly, but it, it sounds a lot like hypocrisy. In fact, it's literally a, a, a Greek as, the Greek word transliterates directly into English. So let love be without hypocrisy. Now what is hypocrisy? We all have a, we all have an aversion to that whole concept of someone who is a hypocrite. And generally a hypocrite in our minds is someone who professes one thing and does another, who puts on one image and privately or with a different group of people presents another image. And the word hypocrite in Greek is the word hypocrisy. Really, it is the idea of acting in a play. And in the time that this was written, the play, the play actors would act behind a mask, so you would never really see their face. You'd never really see who they were. And yet they would be projecting and presenting some stereotypical, uh, dramatic um, device, uh, some, some character, in, in, order to, uh, in order to move the play forward and so on. So if you if you think of someone wearing a mask and presenting an image that is something other than what they really are, that is the opposite of the kind of love that we're to have as Christians. Um, it's it's quite easy and quite common for us to wear masks and to close off our brothers and sisters from aspects of our lives that we think are, are too private or, or too tender to share with anyone else. And it's also possible for us to put on a mask of mercy, of, gender, gender, of, of tenderness, and so on, when our heart is, is very cold. Um, and maybe to cover up animosity that we have toward a brother or sister, to, to put a, a layer over top of that so that they are, so that the people they think that we are showing compassion. Um, let love be genuine. Let love be without hypocrisy, without any pretense whatsoever. And I, I, I have to be, I'll, I'll be honest myself, and you can just examine your own conscience, I think. Um, I think there's always a temptation to which I sometimes yield to present something more or something that does not quite square with the actual truth that I know about myself. I'm not saying that you should be mean to people just because you're not, um, you're not very uh, 
feeling very kindly there, then we need, but, but if we're going to function within the body, these things, we need to deal with them before God. And as I've been working through this passage this last week, and all the expectations to, uh, you know, to outdo one another and showing honor, and, and especially to bless those who persecute, and to treat our enemies with kindness, I've certainly been confronted with lingering, um, lingering fog of, of bitterness. And collectively, as a church, we've been through some things that were hard for us. And some of us have been more personally engaged in that than others. And this conflict, uh, it, uh, it's something that has happened within the body of Christ. And, and sometimes uh, there's bitterness that can fester and that can um, literally quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, and part of what it means to be a genuine Christian who is looking on the mercies of God and resting in the mercies of God is to forgive with the same grace and the same mercy that Christ showed us. Um, Christ did not die to save worthy people. He died to save sinners, blasphemers, God-haters. And that love of God, that mercy of God, forgiveness, this is the spirit we receive when we receive Christ. So, keeping everything in check with the Word of God. If you don't have the Gospel leading up to this, as in the first 11 chapters, this is, it's like a Sermon on the Mount all over again. It's like, it's like the Ten Commandments, but kind of fleshed out into practical terms that seem almost impossible. Or seem completely impossible. But what Paul and what the Holy Spirit are describing for us in this passage is the normal life of the church. It is not necessarily the actual life of the church, but it is what we are called to. And when you do think of the church as the body of Christ, you, and you realize that this is more than just a metaphor, that we indeed are the body of Christ, which Ephesians goes so so far, Paul says in Ephesians, so goes so far as to say we are the fullness of the who fulfills everything in every way. Now we are not obviously perfect in representing Christ. But in the church, as in Christian marriage, God has given a picture to the world of himself and of Christ. So when we love as Christ loved, when we forgive as Christ forgave, when we get this, when we judge as Christ judged, because we are permitted and we are called to judge with righteous judgment, but Christ judged as someone who had no sin in himself, 
So when we judge as Christ judged, we follow Christ's instruction to move, remove the beam from our own eye before we take the step out of another's eye. Getting a little far from the text here, so let's get back. Love, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. What does it mean to abhor? Not a word you use a lot. Did someone have a suggestion? I heard something. Strongly hate. Strongly hate. That's good. That's what I was going to say. To strongly hate. To hate with passion. To, uh, to, to want to run from the presence of evil. And evil, um, we know what evil is. Evil is all that opposes God. All that is against his holy character. Run. Run with, uh, with all your strength away from what is evil. Detest it. And hold fast or cleave, literally stick. Like stick, be stuck together with what is good. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Um, oh, sorry, I missed a whole paragraph. <laughs> Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, this is really interesting because we start off with the word love in this passage, but love be genuine. And now we switch to another definition of love, but the, the second definition of love flows out of the first kind of love. The first love in verse 9, but love be genuine, that's agape. That is spiritual love. It is unconditional love. And when the New Testament was written, that, that word, until that time, was not in common everyday usage. It was used sometimes, but only to describe perfect divine love. So it wasn't a word that people used every day. When the New Testament was written, you see agape, that unconditional love, all over the place. 1 Corinthians 13, that's agape love. That's his spiritual, unconditional Love. The other kind of love that's mentioned in, the, in this passage, it's, it's clearly defined right here, is brotherly love, or the uh, family, the love that you would have for a member of your own family. So it's interesting that the way that Paul goes about this here, it says, um, let love, love one another with brotherly affection. In other words, brotherly love one another with brotherly affection. The nature and the character of our love within the body of Christ, under the genuine, unconditional love, it's the same warmth and the same intensity that we would have for our own brothers and sisters. Uh, assuming we get along with our brothers and sisters. But it, it's uh, one of the distinguishing characteristics of the early church that is recorded by a secular historian is that they insist on calling each other brothers. They insist that when they trust in Jesus Christ, they are one family. And this was a distinguishing mark of the early church and has been a distinguishing mark where there is a, a true family, a, a, a friendship, a brotherhood that is actually because of the agape that is moving through it is even stronger than the bond between siblings or between uh, the familial um, love. 
So love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. To honor confidence. How can we how can we beat someone to the thrill and the opportunity to honor them and to uh, to serve them, to do something that's meaningful for them. I, I have in our home. Um, I think my wife is the one who jumps to showing others honor, and she does it for me all the time. I'm not nearly so spontaneous at that. Um, you know, um, I, th I think I'm the more selfish of us, the two of us, honestly. So I take this, I take this very seriously. How am I going to show honor to my brothers? How am I going to, um, how am I going to honor them as, as, as Philippians says, it says earlier in, in Romans chapter 12, to honor them more than myself and to think of them more highly than myself. That's how you honor someone, isn't it? You think of someone else more highly than you. You place them in that position of honor. And as Jesus said, you love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Outdo one another. Um, it's not that there's bragging rights if you honor somebody more. It's just like this is what Christ has called us to is to care for one another with honor. We've just seen uh, when we went through the passage about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 13, how when one member suffers, all suffer with it, and how uh, more honor is bestowed and given to the parts that are less presentable. That's that whole context of honoring is continuing here. Now this, this sounds a little bit, again, you don't have the gospel. You don't, if you don't understand that the gospel actually changes your heart, makes you a new creature, you can live for a while under these idealistic principles. And you'll you'll have you'll have some immediate benefit from that. But I I'd invite you to look at the sharing ethic that was behind Socialism and ultimately communism in the Soviet Union, for example. The idea that uh, you know we, we share everything, we're all for one, one for all, all for the common good. And you know, look look where that went. Look at the selfishness that pervaded socialism. Look at the fact that people who were all given the same amount, resented the fact that they couldn't get more. And you, you turn it the other way, and you look at capitalism. Well, it tends to be a great way of generating wealth and so on. But the same problem permeates both greed and selfishness. And greed is the enemy of democracy, and greed is the enemy of socialism. But in the church, we're not bound by either of those things. We actually have power. We actually have power to live this way. This is not an impossibility. We have the Spirit of Christ who brings us together in perfect unity. 
we have the Spirit of Christ who moves within us and directs us to the needs that are around us in the body of Christ. We have people who are literally gifted with giving. Whom God supplies and they give. And this is this is how God has equipped his body. And if if we get into the fleshly way of thinking this, even with our spiritual gifts, as we discussed last week, we can, if we take ownership of our gifts and we begin to try to carry out those gifts as if they're ours, as if we own them, and as if we have the power to carry them out, we can actually sin in using those so-called gifts. But if those things are uh, are practiced humbly, and if we're using them with joy in the context of the body, and uh, there there is a there is an economy within the church that transcends anything that man has ever devised as far as bringing people together in unity and harmony. Um, the, the church ought to be a shining example of human cooperation and love that the world can only envy. In fact, when you look at the accounts that were written by people like Tacitus and, and other early um, writers and historians, they the the love that the believers showed for one another was the constant characteristic of these folks notice among the brothers. So genuine love, love that runs from evil uh, and, and holds and cleaves to what is good, brotherly love, honoring love, uh, this is where we are being called as individuals and as a church. What we tend to do when we're given a, a commandment like this to love one another, we maybe reinterpret that. Love, uh, love, love one another when others love you. We kind of wait for that initiation or to wait for a reason to love. I would ask that Christ wait for a reason to love. To love us and give himself. He would still be waiting. He would still be waiting. Do, do not be slothful in zeal. Uh, in our last week we, we, we saw that the person who is gifted with leadership should lead with zeal, with passion, with conviction. Um, love can be very, or an unbiblical understanding of love, it can be very passive. We can wait for things to happen to us rather than taking initiative. A leader takes initiative. He has to have zeal. A leader who does not take leadership with zeal, soon will not be a leader. Uh, so, it, this whole context here is actually applying to love. To be 
to be not to be slothful in zeal means to be actively engaging in using the gifts that God has given you within this um, within this milieu within this environment of love that just kind of percolates from everything. It says be fervent in spirit. Now my my Bible has a little uh, footnote there, and it says are fervent in the spirit. And from the text, it's pretty difficult to know whether that article, like the article, is always implied. So is it referring to the Holy Spirit or is it referring to our spirit? And I think that it would be quite safe to say both. It would be quite safe to say that your, your spirit should be fervent. And that fervent literally means to be set on fire. Be set on fire in your spirit. You know, it, it has, there, there's tremendous energy there. There is tremendous uh, power and, um, and passion. And I, I, I certainly believe that this, that kind of zeal, that kind of fervency comes through the Holy Spirit. If you've ever heard a man preach un, in the zeal of the Holy Spirit, some of you listen to Paul Washington. You have either one of two reactions. You think this guy's this guy's so angry and he's just bitter at everybody. And I said, no, that's not what I saw. Or you 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 know that someone is actually powerfully, passionately proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and declaring the judgment of God against sin. But the the, the heart of all of this. The heart of all of this is that the power of God through the preaching of the word would draw lost sinners to himself. And that is love. That is, the, that is not bitter at all. This, it, it, is, uh, it is the fervent, it is fervency in spirit. Uh, I don't suggest that we go around cultivating false fervency. But I suspect when Peter stood before the 3,000, and scripture says, full of the Holy Spirit. That there was something where the people could not take their eyes off of him, and they could not take their ears off of him, off of him because he was proclaiming with authority the word of God. The same way that Jesus spoke with authority, not as the scribes and teachers. Any Christian who is full of the Spirit of God can speak the word of God with authority. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. Fervent in spirit. And by the way, fervency doesn't necessarily mean loudness or articulateness or any of that. It is simply uh, evidence of the power of God and the control of God of your spirit as you serve Him. So, and it says, serve the Lord. Serve, worship. It's the same thing. Latria, it's the, the Greek word means to serve as the, the priest served in the temple. You know, there is some something that the priesthood has been abolished in the New Covenant. There's no such thing as priests anymore. 
in one sense it has. As far as the Aaronic priesthood, as far as people who interceded and served that sort of between God and man kind of role, Jesus Christ is the high priest. But we are also, each and every one of us, male and female, we are a priesthood where we all have that role of serving in the Lord's temple, in his, in his body. We serve one another. We intercede for one another. And that service is called worship. And the, uh, the venue in which we serve and worship extends far beyond this sanctuary. In the Old, in the old Covenant, the service, the priestly service, was primarily confined to the tabernacle, or later on to the temple. But the tabernacle of God is his people who worship him in spirit and in truth. So we continually serve one another. And, and we serve the Lord um, as we minister to one another, as we proclaim his word, as we, um, we lay out the gospel. It's all included in serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Rhonda and I have, or Rhonda has a brother-in-law who is, uh, his cancer is, is spread now to his, his whole body, all of his bones. He's been experiencing more and more pain and he's finally acknowledging the, the level of the pain. He's asking for more medication. And I want to tell you what his hope is. The only thing that he is really looking forward to to motivate him is going to getting to, to drag race this year. And you know, you know, working on his car. That's sort of it. That's sort of it. That's that that's the hope that is set before him. It's a very temporal hope. And unless God does a miracle, he probably he might not even get to realize that. But the hope that we have does not disappoint, according to Romans chapter 5. The hope that we have is the redemption of our bodies. The hope that we have is our adoption as sons. And that hope, when it is set before us, when we are looking toward Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and knowing that he has promised that what he has done, that, he had, that what he has begun, he will complete. Knowing that the one who started off by foreknowing us will not only not only foreknown, but predestined us and has called us and has justified us and glorified us. That as far as God is concerned because it is something that he has planned for the foundation of the world, that this is already complete. And that even our perfection and, and our ultimate glorification and the shedding of this body and the deliverance from the body of death, which represents all of the sin and all of the, the, the desires that were against the soul, that all of that is going to be uh, swallowed up and replaced with an incorruptible body. 
and a fully transformed mind and a fully renewed heart and life. That's our hope. Rejoice in hope. Why wouldn't we rejoice in this? Would the would these circumstances at the end of Romans chapter eight bothers? Who shall bring anything against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it, who is it who, to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, the one that was raised. Um, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, uh, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But I wonder the most grim circumstances that one could imagine. But hope in the gospel, hope in the redemption of our bodies into what Christ has already completed and promised to fulfill, it erases the power and destroys the power and the fear that usually accompanies. In all these things, we are more than conquerors from him who loved us. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Tribulation is acute distress. Tribulation is intense friction. Tribulation is, of course, we know the great tribulation that's coming at the end of the age when God's people and the whole world will be um, under, first of all, the consequences of, of human wrath, under natural disasters and so on, and ultimately the tribulation is God's wrath being poured out. Well, we have no fear of God's wrath being poured out if we are in Christ. And even the other kind of tribulation, which is the, the distress that just comes from living in a world that is hostile towards God and that is unwinding because of it. Shall God separate us from the love of God? No. We can be patient in it. We can know that God has not appointed us to wrath. Be constant in prayer. It's exactly what it sounds like. It means that the attitude of our hearts should be one that is constantly appealing to God out of our need. The one that is constantly acknowledging our desperation for his wisdom, for his discipline, for our daily bread. If we're breathing, we should be we should uh, we should be in the attitude of prayer. And I don't want I, I this can be understood in a way that puts sort of a legalistic burden upon people that, that if you're if you're not you know, spending six, seven, eight hours a day in prayer and somehow you're you're not as spiritual as a guy who is. This is more talking about an, an attitude and uh, an aspiration that we are to be a praying people. 
God's people are praying people. We're a dependent people. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, back to that generosity and selflessness that we, we saw demonstrated um, as, uh, right after Pentecost where the believers um, sold some sold property and began to distribute to people who needed um, financial assistance. They shared all things in common. You know, this, that sharing, it did not come out of somebody's brain that says, we should create a whole new economic system where we all put everything in one pot and we all share it. It was what the Holy Spirit moved them to do. The Holy Spirit diminished in their minds the importance of holding to personal possessions and produced in them the generosity to share with one another. And I would like to think that even, even though we're far removed from those early days and, um, and even though it's uh, somewhat foolish to try to recreate the exact conditions of the early church, because we are under very different conditions, we have a whole canon of scripture, um, uh, we have or uh, churches organized with leadership and so on, it's very different than it was. But is it too much to think that this attitude of, of sharing with one another and of giving to anyone we see that's in need, that that would not be honoring and glorifying to God, and that that would still be his desire? I, I know that uh, I, I see much evidence of giving and also hospitality. Uh, amongst our, um, I, I'm telling you, since since we um, no longer have a central location to, to meet for our youth, we've been meeting in different homes, and to see the, the the difference it makes when people open their homes and, and we go in and we we share in, in the atmosphere of the home, and um, you know that, that we can't the young people they want to stay well. 11 o'clock, or, or they, they don't want to leave, and the fellowship is so sweet. And a big part of what's making it so wonderful for the young people is that it is the church showing the hospitality. It is the church opening homes to one another. And it's uh, it's exciting to see that the men's breakfast, same kind of thing. We're not meeting in the central building, but uh, we're, we're getting to no one our, our masks are coming off right the the genuine love that without that uh, that sincere love is is coming through i don't even know what time it is i don't want to ramble like i thought it's so difficult to outline this and just kind of going through it so i hope you'll bear with me and uh, right what time is it? Five. Five thirty. okay I should quit. <laughs> All right. All right. Now those those uh, three verses there. This pretty much you can assume it, it's really intended as this is what you should practice. This this is the life within the church. 
But when you look at the next verse is from 14 to 21. There's, a, there's kind of a, there, there's a transition, a gradual transition to, from how this looks within the church to how the mercies of God and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, how they actually play out in relation to the rest of the world. But it's not absolutely clear because some things are, are, are carried over from the church into this. So let's just, uh, let's just look at this uh, as we go through. Blessed are those who persecute, or bless those who persecute you. Bless them, do not curse them. Now that, that, if that's talking about the church, uh, first of all, could that be talking about the church? Is it possible that Christians could ever stoop to persecute one another? Let me just ask, has it ever happened in history? It's happened, okay? It was likely to happen in Rome. When you had cultures merging Jews and Gentiles coming together in one body, each bringing their presuppositions with them. There was always potential for one group to be, to be looking down on another. From the very foundation of the church, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked because the pure Jewish widows were more important to the pure Jewish people who were not um, tainted by the Greek culture. And that, so that was an issue that had to be dealt with. These commands, or these, they're, they're not really imperatives, they're more obligations. This is how we ought, this is, this is, these are ought things. This is how we ought to be as a church. These are given, um, Thoughts gone. Okay. Lost it. Oh well. <laughs> Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I, I wonder. Ron asked me the other day, "What is? What is curse? What is it? What is it exactly?" I think we know what cursing is, don't we? It's not just saying a bad word. But it's possible to curse someone even in our hearts. It's possible to wish ill for them. And then sometimes it comes out into actually speaking ill. And when it comes out in speaking, it's pretty serious. You know, to say to your brother Raka, you fool. That's equivalent to the sin of murder. But it's a, it's a pretty serious thing. So bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. It's, that, that's the command on the level of turning the other cheek when someone slaps you. Isn't it? Isn't it the exact same mentality that Jesus, that it's not a natural thing to turn your other cheek when someone slaps you in the face? Anymore, it's no more natural to bless someone who curses you or bless someone who persecutes you. The natural thing is to curse them and to, <laughs> and to try to get even and to try to get vengeance. 
Remember, this is all, this is all about love in here. Okay, so we can assume that people in the world will persecute us. Jesus gives us very, very clear teaching. He said, don't be surprised when men revile and hate you and say false things against you for my name's sake. Rejoice in these things. But even, even should something of this nature come up within the church, I think the same commandment applies. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Self-explanatory, I think. Live in harmony with one another. I like the word that's used, harmony. Different word than unity. Different word than uniformity. What is it? What is it that uh, distinguishes harmony from unison? What's there? Uh, if we got harmony, what do we hear? Different parts, all blending together. Right? Complementary parts. And when you hear them all together, you hear many, and what you, but what you hear is one sound that is composed with the many, and it makes a unified sound that is more beautiful because of all the complementary parts. Live in harmony. It fits so well with what we've already learned about the body, where each part has its own function. What we've learned about the gifts, where each gift is to be used for the building up of the body. Uh, you can see how a church that blesses those who curse, a church who lives in harmony, how Christ would be portrayed and magnified in you. Do not be haughty, in other words, do not be conceited, looking down upon others, but associate with the lowly. You see, uh, again, that's the same idea as giving more honor to the to the memory that is least presentable. It means you're never too good to take time and to engage in the life of anyone in the church. Repay no one evil for evil, or never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Again, that's it's a lot like that cursing thing. In fact, the whole idea of repayment for evil, it seems to be the main caution that's here in this whole paragraph. That we ought not to curse those who persecute us. We not ought ought not to repay evil for evil. We not ought ought not to seek vengeance for ourselves. <coughs> Counterculture in every way. But give thought to what is honorable and all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And this is re referring to, again, it's the, the scope is spreading out here. Okay. Scope is gradually spreading out. And this is the whole world. If possible, live at peace with the world. What would be, a, what would be an exception 
What would be an exception where it would not be possible to live peaceably with the world? Can anybody think of an exception to that? Uh, or, 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 yes, game. Uh, if it was basically <coughs> was trying to force you to do something that would be against the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, you can only have one child because of our population problem. If you have more, you have to have an abortion. Okay? Yeah, that would be an example where it would not be possible. You could you could live peaceably, you wouldn't have to go to war with them, but you would have to resist because you would have to obey God's law over man's law. And I like the way, the way you said you there about conformity, or sort of about the world maybe forcing you to do something. That's exactly what we had in, in 12 verse 2 here. Not to be conformed to this world, not to be squeezed into the mold, mold, mold but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we have a command not to be like the world. So there are, there are places where we will have to disagree, we will have to stand, where there will have to be conflict. Um, the gospel even divides families. It doesn't mean that the families that if, if there's unbelievers in a family and and they don't want anything to do with you because you're a believer, it doesn't mean you turn and hostility toward them. It does mean, however, that the expectation of, of sharing in unity and fellowship is it, it has to be uh, laid aside because there is no spiritual unity there. But within the church, it ought to be a completely different story. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Would it be? Would it be a lot easier to handle if that word "never" was not in there? Or if there was an unless? Never avenge yourself unless? No, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. <coughs> you see, vengeance is a great burden. You never heard of the play of the merchant of Venice? The merchant is wrong. And the whole play is about him giving his pound of flesh, of, of him extracting payment, revenge, penance, or uh, payment for this wrong that was done to him. And it destroys them. Vengeance is a tremendous burden to bear. And I would like to suggest that. As we confess our sins and as we have the crushing weight of sin removed from us, and as that sin is forgiven, because we rest in Christ, who has paid in full for that sin, we can also rest in this fact that if vengeance is in order and if justice must be done, that we can offload that and say, I'll trust God to deal with that. Meantime, what does he 
He called me to bless those who persecute me. And just know that the, the, the burden of justice is not on you. You will never sort it out in any way that does not bring you into the same sin that you're trying to get be drawn into it. But let God take care of those things. Even the saints below the throne in the book of Revelation, the soul of the saints, they cry out, how long until our blood is avenged? And they leave it to the Lord Jesus. That, that that's, he, he will take care of it. Justice will be done. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, will be burning coals on his head. And no matter not to burn off his hair and make him do that comfortable. It's, it's the idea of uh, you, would, you would heat burning coals on metal to change it, to soften it, so that you could mold it and, um, and work it into something that was better than what it was originally, like that, that pile of ore could actually become something useful. <laughs> uh, just about finish. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's something wonderful about it, like when you see a church practicing these things. And when you see Christians loving each other, as God calls us to love one another, that is the that is the church that is the overcoming church. You remember one of the few churches in the Book of Revelation, I think, were two that didn't receive a rebuke. The one was the the Philadelphian church, which literally means the city of brotherly love, Philadelphians, the city of brotherly love. Um, so, what we have in all of these commandments here, which are all based on love, is the second table of the law. The first table of the law had to do with those God commandments, you know, how, how you shall have no other gods before me, and how you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Second table is all man related horizontal commandments. Jesus puts them both together and he makes no distinction. When he says, The greatest commandment is love your neighbor and yourself. The second is like good. Or no, second, first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, they, they are inseparable commandments. Our love for one another is a manifestation of the love of God which dwells in our hearts through Christ like faith. That agape love manifests itself in phileo love, in brotherly love, which brings glory to God. And all of this is a view of the mercies of God.
of the salvation that is granted in Jesus Christ. Just to close, I want to read a very brief summation of the gospel from Romans chapter 5. Blessed, you're overwhelmed with all of these commandments and all of these expectations. And if you feel, well, I can't do all this thing, or I can try, I can maybe get 75%. It's not the trying, it's not the striving that God looks at. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also obtain access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and that character produces hope, and hope does not put to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see how love that is poured out into our hearts, uh, it, it is our assurance as we go through life, and, and, and it, it, uh, it, it is a reflection of our justification. We're going to observe the, the Lord's Supper, and I think it's a, a really appropriate passage talking about the unity of the body and our love for one another. In the early church, this was called the love feast. It was a whole meal. Um, people messed it up because it, it began to be about selfishness and gluttony and drunkenness and so on. Uh, but We've been given a good uh, reminder of what this communion is in Christ. How we are one with Christ and we are one with one another. Let's pray. Father, can we observe communion as we partake of these, um, these ordinances, that these uh, elements that remind us and represent and help us to touch and to taste the reality of what Christ has done for us. Lord, I pray that the, the, the words of this passage in Romans chapter 12, that in view of God's mercies, that we are transformed people. I pray, Lord, that we will truly appreciate the new life that has been given to us. And, Lord, the, the power and even the desire to live in such a way. It all comes from Jesus. It's all a gift. We thank you for the love of God that is poured out in our